This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Gem Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode, which is a continuation of the Division Capsule series, which are really the centerpiece of the Real Gem Radio off-season. And this one was really fun for me, a repeat of last year, the Southwest Division with Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated and Jonathan Charks, former Real GM colleague, now, of course, of The Ringer. And we go all over the place. There are a lot of things to talk about with the teams in this division. I mean, the Rockets had an absolute overhaul. The Spurs had an interesting offseason. You can go through all of the teams, and we give plenty of time to all of them. And that's one of the benefits of going on for an hour and a half, which we absolutely did. And it was so much fun talking with them. This episode is brought to you by Bombfell, which is a fantastic way for, for men to get clothes. You can check it out at bombfell.com slash realgm. You get $25 off your first order. And also FanDuel. FanDuel is a great way to try a fantasy. I'm not not doing year-long fantasy for the first time in my adult life. You can go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now, Join now button, and then Real GM, and so you can tell them you came from us, and you can get entry into a, a big money contest. So you can check that out as well. This one, as I said, it runs about an hour and a half, and it it was a, it was a joy to do. I really did enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Yeah, it's, it's good, uh, good to be here. Yeah, for sure. I like starting these with a basic question, which is just, in this division, who got better over the offseason and who got worse? Well, I mean, it's hard not to start with the Rockets, obviously, getting Chris Paul. I mean, it's a pretty big upgrade from Pat. I like Pat Beverly, but it's obviously a really big upgrade there. And then who got worse? I don't know what the Hornets are doing anymore. I, they, I, it's bad. The it's mind-blowing what they're trying. Oh, the Pelicans. Yeah, see? <laughs> That's a far off on them. I have. I've forgotten their name. Yeah. I was going to say, the one team that I really don't know how to make heads or tails of in terms of this question is Memphis, just because they've obviously lost some key pieces. They're going to be kind of reshaped without Zach Randolph, without Tony Allen. But the pieces that they brought in, and then also there's just like some kind of ground floor issues where like you can't get less from Chandler Parsons than you did last year. Just the idea that they might have some semblance of a backup point guard might improve them. If Brandon Wright is healthy at all, it might be a boon for them. I really don't know whether they got better or worse. I'm not sure it matters just because the rest of the conference is, is I think, taking steps beyond them. But they're a team I really don't know how to place right now. Is Jamichael Green signed yet or is he still like out there? Technically. Not as of yet. He He's out there, but we can make the assumption that he will be a part of their team just because holdouts don't really happen in the NBA in that same way. This isn't like the NFL where, you know, there's a big benefit to it. So I'm assuming he'll be on the team at some point, probably with a deal he's unhappy with, which is actually another storyline for this division because that's what happened with Nerlens. But on the on the Rockets part, I think what impresses me most about what they did is that they were able to add so much depth after what they had to give up and what they had to move around to get Chris Paul. Because you could have easily seen this be a transition year for them where 
Maury and the and ownership and everything were like, hey, you know, this is a big move. We're going to be way better. But adding Mbamute, adding PJ Tucker, getting Nene back, you know, like this is actually like they they did lose some pieces that were of value to them, but they didn't take a step back in the depth department the way I expected, considering what happened with that trade. No, absolutely. And, you know, as John mentioned, too, when you're talking about replacing a point guard with another point guard, and then you traded for Lou Williams, but he was kind of a redundant piece. I mean, he was useful if you want to play more three guard looks and things like that. But you already have Eric Gordon. You obviously already have a lot of offense and a lot of minutes going to James Harden. So it's they didn't really give up anything they couldn't afford to lose. And I agree the P.J. Tucker and Luke Mbamute signings. I think are really important for them. I think they, they really kind of transform that team in an interesting way where maybe the most important thing that the Rockets could have done for themselves this offseason was give them give themselves alternatives for when Ryan Anderson isn't playing well or when Ryan mm-hmm. Anderson isn't a great matchup for a playoff series. Because as we've seen, there are just going to be times where if his shot isn't going, opponents can completely neutralize him. And then there's going to be problems defensively just from him being on the court. So P.J. Tucker and, and Luka Mbamute are, are flawed, limited players in their own right. They're going to be dared to shoot by a lot of teams, and, and they're going to have to prove that they can. But they're guys who can at least offer some kind of flexibility, some kind of alternatives, and they're going to give you something on the other side of the ball where these are two pretty strong, versatile defenders who could guard any kind of forward. And I think that's going to be a nice piece for the Rockets to have. I was just going to say, Rob is being very polite. There will be times, yeah, when they play elite teams, like every single time they play an elite team, they have to get him off the floor, basically, Ryan Anderson. I don't see how he can play against Warriors or the Spurs anymore. Well, he can maybe play a little bit against backup units, but I think you're right that he can't play against the starters. You know, like, let's say with Golden State, the minutes that Stephen Curry's on the floor, I don't think they can have Anderson on the floor very much because the Warriors know how to take advantage of a guy like that. They know they know what to do, and well. The Warriors and Rockets didn't play last year. I think we have a pretty good idea of how that would have gone. Yeah, I mean, who is he even going to guard at all? Would he have to guard Zaza or something? Or would he guard Draymond, I guess? They'll pick him up every single time if that happens. Yeah, there isn't, yeah. Yeah, there isn't in the base lineups, there isn't really a place to put him. I mean, they can try to fiddle with some stuff in, in the deeper, deeper things. And, then, and also something that I think about the multiple looks that's interesting with the Rockets is because so much happened after that, I I forgot until we were working on this podcast just how ridiculous the end of that series with the Spurs was. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And I know that was closer closer to you guys. And just the you know the Spurs, it looks like they're going to go through this downturn. They're dealing with all these injuries, and then they still just run through the Rockets in that game six. Well, it was cool though. It was like watching the last four years of the NBA like and fast forward. Like they start so big, and then by game six, it's Jonathan Simmons versus Ryan Anderson. And he just couldn't keep up. And that gets into the the one one of the teams that we didn't talk about in terms of better or worse, which is the Spurs and San Antonio. It was just a just a weird off season for them. I mean, I think they're going to really miss Deadman and Simmons. But at the same point, you know, for thinking about this more as a regular season exercise, I think it's not those losses aren't as devastating. But replacing them pretty much, you know, new additions with with Rudy Gay and I guess you would say Joffrey Laverne. I guess that's really the the two big guys they brought in you know that's gonna that's gonna hurt their their variability and their it's just kind of how versatility how they can handle all this stuff and i think you could argue that san antonio considering the stakes i think that you could argue that they had the worst offseason because while you know memphis probably got they got worse by a larger degree san antonio is actually a title contender so that difference means more to them no, I think so. And then plus you have the issue of 
how much are their young guys really going to improve versus their old guys kind of taking a step back? And this is where, especially with Pau Gasol, who they just resigned on a contract, and then Monty Ginobili, who they just resigned as well, guys who are at that age where every it's kind of a month to month, quarter to quarter kind of situation where you could see some really sharp depreciation really quickly. And that's where things get kind of worrisome for them, just because they are such a good team, as you mentioned, Danny, and they're going to be in a position to do hopefully some interesting things this year. But you're relying pretty heavily on two guys, and maybe even more so on Manu now than you did a year ago, because you don't have Simmons and you don't have really any kind of functional wing depth, which is a crazy thing to think about in the modern NBA. But just to be leaning so much on those guys when you don't know quite what you're going to get out of you know, the Davis Rutans, the DeJounte Murrays, the Kyle Andersons of your team, it, it makes me a little nervous about what they're going to be. Uh, ultimately, I, I don't think they're going to match last season's win total necessarily, but you would hope that they're at least going to put themselves in a position to really challenge some of these best teams in the West. I was just going to say, it feels like this is really the transition year for San Antonio with all these young guys. Parker's going to miss, what, a few months at least? I don't even know. But he probably won't play until like January or February, I would assume. So yeah, it comes into Bertans, Anderson, maybe even Derek White plays some, the rookie from Colorado, Murray. But might need Brandon, for- Brandon Paul to play from Europe. Yeah, and Brandon Paul looked really good in Summer League. Uh, he was on Cleveland's team, which was which was kind of a surprise just because you wouldn't have expected Cleveland's team to, to really pop, but Paul had an opportunity, made the most of it. And the other element of it that we don't really know too well, or at least I don't at this point, is where Rudy Gay is. I mean, Rudy Gay missed a large portion of last season with an Achilles injury, which is one of those that still is scary. Like the, like ACL tears, other than in Jabari Parker's case where it's the second time, you know, usually we kind of know what that is and those aren't scary anymore. For me, Achilles injuries are still that thing, going back to Dominique Wilkins and just going, well, we, we don't know exactly what he's going to be. And yeah, if Rudy Gay gets back to 95, 100%, then he'll be a very useful player for San Antonio, especially considering the lack of wing depth that they have. But if it's 80, 85% this season, then, you know, that that's not as nearly as useful a player in competitive series. I will say after watching Wesley Matthews in Dallas, like if he gets to 80% this year, I'd be impressed. Like that is a devastating injury and it takes a long time to get better from. If you can at all. I mean, I think we've yeah. seen with Wes too, where you're talking about year over year over year now where he's getting a little better, a little more mobile, but you know, you have to brace yourself for the reality that Rudy Gay may never be the same player again. And he's kind of in a better position on the age curve than some other guys who have suffered, you know, Achilles injuries in the past. But I pretty much chalk up the first season as more or less a lost season in terms of him being a helpful NBA player. And so really it's looking forward in terms of what Gay would be able to give you down the line or how much he'll be able to recoup from his career because I just I just don't think he's going to be there this year in a way that's going to make any difference for the Spurs, especially when you're talking about him making a difference against the only teams in the West that really matter, like the Rockets and the Warriors. I think for San Antonio, like what I'm curious to see is how if they play smaller – They've kind of gone against the curve the last few years playing two bigs, but they have almost no bigs left anymore. They're almost going to have to go quiet the four, Bertans, the stretch four, stretch five guy, and just play with one big on the floor a lot more than they have in the past. I think that too, and there was a moment in the summer where I was more excited about that, but their wing depth is still limited, especially if Gay is is out or is just not at his same level. And so yeah, this this is the shallowest Spurs team that we've seen in quite some time. And while we could still talk about who got better, who got worse, the next thing I usually do is kind of off-season moves that were notable in some way. And the Rudy Gay contract is actually the one I wanted to talk about 
because there is an underappreciated amount of risk in giving him a player option for the second year after an Achilles injury. And originally that was bothering me more because it looked like, oh man, look, San Antonio, they're going to have so much money next summer. Then when they signed Pau Gasol on a deal that I didn't, I didn't like in terms of the guaranteed money they gave him and everything else, because next year they would have had serious flexibility. It matters a little bit less now, but San Antonio might be closer to locked in to this team as opposed to having the space to add a huge difference maker likely next summer, like I think most of us expected that they were going to be able to do. This is a really strange time for them, and and we brought up Tony Parker too, and this feels like kind of a natural inflection point for him for me in terms of where his career is I could see this being the kind of year where he comes back and they bring him off the bench and that just kind of becomes who he is now I don't know who the Spurs would want as their long-term starter between uh, Murray and Patty Mills I think there's kind of arguments for either but like I feel like Parker and this being a convenient point to kind of sideline him puts kind of a stamp on where the Spurs are in terms of just the weirdness and kind of this transitory state. I, I really don't know what to do with a lot of the roster. I really wouldn't know how to proceed in terms of trying to build and add, as you mentioned, Danny, to this group of players because you've committed so much financially already and you've kind of sopped up some of those cap holes that you might have been able to fill with more talent. They're really in a weird place. And that's something that I don't think we've seen from San Antonio in a really long time. And certainly since they've kind of come of age as, as a dynasty and as an organization. I think you'll see a lot of Murray at the two. We're talking about wing depth. I think they're going to have to slide him down and play like Patty Mills, Bryn Forbes until Parker gets back because that's probably the best way to paper that over him being like six five six six. Well, and Forbes is going to have a place, I think, on this team because Kawhi can do so much more with the ball in his hands now than he used to be able to, is that you need a little bit less creation from the other guy, but you still want something. I mean, it's always a good thing if you don't have to sacrifice anything else, but we have so many questions with the Spurs depth guys. You know, Kyle Anderson has been somewhat of a disappointment in his NBA career. He was drafted at 30th, so you can't be too crazy about it. But people, including me, thought that he was that he fell too far. And, you know, so now they need guys like him, maybe Derek White, Rudy Gay, if he can be healthy, to actually perform in order to reach their maximum. But then they can try out these guys that are a little bit more limited with Kawhi just because he's so special. Yeah, there's definitely feels like a Kawhi MVP here. I would say with Anderson, he has to play at the four. They played him at the three his first few years in the league, and he's so slow. He has to be moved down or, I guess, up a position where he can kind of use, be a little quicker, be a little more mobile. At the third, he's just kind of a guy because he's just a big, tall guy out there not really doing much. I wonder how they're going to use him and Manu together because Anderson, you know, he can make some good decisions. I don't think he can create as much off the dribble just because he's so slow, but he can make it. But if the situation presents itself where he has to like shoot or pass or do whatever, I think he's going to make the right decision. But then having too many other guys who are who are kind of comfortable with the ball in their hands and different things can be a decrease to to the value that he can provide. So, yeah, I want to see how they how Pop uses him. And, I mean, LaMarcus Aldridge, to a point, has kind of become the forgotten guy. I mean, there was all that reporting earlier in the year, earlier in the offseason, about how he maybe wasn't happy there. And he has a player option for next year, which is it's a little bit over $20 million. And the expectation is that he'll opt out and get a new contract. But, I mean, if he has a disappointing year, maybe they're even more trapped than we thought because he just says, well, I'm not going to make that money anywhere else and just opts in. That's kind of a terrifying possibility for them, I think. I, I'm, I'm a little more hopeful of Aldridge 
kind of bouncing back a little bit. I mean, I think ultimately when we harp on him for his bad games and his bad performances, he's generally at least pretty okay. It's just kind of underwhelming based on what you would expect of a guy of his stature. But he obviously still has a ton of utility for this team, and they're going to need him in a big way. And, you know, same in a lot of ways for Danny Green, who we haven't really talked about, but and is kind of a Greg Popovich uh you know, whipping boy in some way as in a lightning rod, a guy who it seems like Pop yells at more than anyone else. But the Spurs are really going to need him on the floor just in terms of having these functional, you know, especially a kind of a two-way wing guy around. There just aren't that many of those guys on this roster. And so you certainly need, you know, Bryn Forbes to create. And you're going to need to play some guys out of position to, to paper over these gaps, as, as John was saying. But I feel like Green is going to be a really important part of this team. And if they have any hope of being a versatile bunch, then he's going to be a big part of it. I mean, with LaMarcus, too, like, we always kind of remember the last thing that happened. And he was like, getting, like, double-teamed but and against the Warriors and a real depleted squad. But I think he had, like, 30 and 15 in Game 6 against Houston. It kind of feels like a season. he's, like, an older, mercenaries kind of guy. He kind of gets blamed for us of the Spurs. He's not really a Spurs-type player. So it just feels like whenever something goes wrong, he's always the first guy to be blamed. That's an interesting point. And also, I think just the nature of his career that he kind of went to, was in Portland, was a part of some good teams in Portland, but then the new era kind of took off after he left. And then San Antonio, you know, disappointing to a degree the last couple of years in the playoffs. Last year it was largely due to injury. I mean, that wasn't, I wouldn't really put that at, at LaMarcus's feet. But then you also see that you know he doesn't always make the most of every opportunity, and that and, and you're right that he's not a Spurs guy. I think those those things both factor in. Another move that I wanted to talk about, just because it's it's legitimately rare when I've been doing these to actually have something that affects this division that happened right before we recorded, and last night we got the announcement that Tony Allen is changing from one team in in this in this Southwest division to another, jumping from the Grizzlies to the Pelicans. This was a surprising move for a couple reasons, but I also think it's impactful for both teams because I kind of had penciled him in for Memphis. There's a perimeter defense is something that he absolutely provides. And while he's imperfect for New Orleans, getting him for what it looks like the minimum is a pretty significant coup for them. I think it's nice and... One of the weird things about their roster, though, is he he really is going to have to log, I would think, some serious minutes at the three, which is fine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he can guard much bigger guys. We've seen that in the past. We've seen him bother Kevin Durant. We've seen him really hang with guys who have size and weight on him. But just, I mean, if you're going to bring in Rajon Rondo, as they have, that means you're pretty much committing to play Drew Holiday at least a chunk of his minutes at the two. You already have Etwan Moore, who, for all of his faults, I think is a better, more complete option than Tony Allen at this point. So you're, you're really kind of leaning on those three guys as the core of your rotation. I think Allen can kind of come in and supply some minutes, can be a good matchup option. And especially if you're, if you're really worried about a particular perimeter opponent, then he's a guy you want out there. And he, I think he's certainly a guy you want as part of your organization. My worry is that... He, he has a chip on his shoulder perpetually. I mean, that's what Tony Allen is. And he's he's been kind of cast off by the Grizzlies, a team who he had hoped to retire with, and ended up with the Pelicans on the minimum. And if you're asking him to come in and be kind of more of a spot minutes guy rather than – I mean, he was in a lot of ways the face of a franchise in Memphis, at least spiritually. I'm a little worried about how he's going to acclimate to that role and just how happy he's going to be in it. Well, he could be starting at three, right? Unless it's it's him or Darius Miller or playing each one more at three. So, like, they need to play a lot, probably. That's what's crazy about New Orleans. It really feels like Chicago last year all over again, 
where like you want it to work. They have a lot of big names, but it's just how do they score if they don't have to guard three of the five, two of the five guys in the raw on the starting lineup? My fear is that Gentry is going to take some time to figure this team out. I mean, we still haven't really seen him prove it with the two high usage bigs. That's it's a, and that's hard for any coach. I'm not going to say, oh, well, Gentry's Gentry's terrible because he can't make this work. But the challenge on top of that is that now they have so many players that you can't really mix and match. You know, I I don't think you can play Tony Allen and Rondo together on this team, when you especially with the bigs on the floor, because teams are just going to fall down and shut down the big, if it's Davis, Cousins, or heaven forbid, both, because of the way that could work. And so I do think that there are some configurations, like the one that I've been thinking is Holiday, Moore, Tony Allen, Davis and Cousins, like I think that can work reasonably well. It's not, it's not amazing, but it, but it can work. But if you start throwing Rondo in that mix, if you start doing some of the other things, then it gets challenging. And as John said, there's a lot that they're going to have to deal with with Solomon Hill out because he'll be back by later in the season, and so they're going to just they're, they're going to have to make do with with kind of the island of misfit toys on the perimeter. Yeah, and they got a Jinka and Asik still making like I don't even know twenty five million dollars to probably never play. It's just a really weird roster, and it's I want to I want it to work. I want to watch Boogie and Davis on a good team, but it's going to require some real juggling to even have a chance. Well, in some ways, I think we we think about the Pelicans a lot in terms of their scoring and kind of what Davis is going to be able to do and Cousins is going to be able to do in the space between them and around them. But really, this was a good defensive team last year, you know, both with those two guys and before Cousins showed up. And to me, that's kind of the crux of what they do. And so losing Hill is certainly a blow to that. You would hope that bringing Allen in will will short that up even more. But if you're a top 10 defensive team, as they were, if they can even get to 20th in offense, which is a sizable jump from where they were, given just how bad this team was offensively last year. I don't know whether that's really enough to to punch your ticket to the playoffs in the West. That bubble is going to be really competitive for the 7th and 8th spots. But I think they could be in the mix in in a pretty meaningful way. But So do they want to play like Memphis basketball, maybe? Just like slow the game to a crawl, try to like win a half-court brute fest? Maybe that's their best chance of winning is winning games like 85. But it's so it's weird because like it's so against Gentry's preferred style of play. Right. He wants to speed it up, spread it out and move the ball. But they're probably better off with Ronda holding the ball, dribbling to the ground, throwing it inside, going for the offensive boards and just like killing the pace this game. Yeah, the, the sound you just big. heard was the sound you just heard was Alvin Gentry's soul leaving his body. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and and the challenge with this is also they have some serious transition talent. I mean, Anthony Davis has been one of the best transition scorers in the league the last few years. I mean, it makes sense. He's smart. He's athletic. He can run and jump and dunk. So maybe what the, this approach is is kind of is something that I've actually wanted young teams to do more often, and I've I've actually pushed for this for the Jazz a little bit, which is run when you can, but then just kill it when you can't, and so just just slow it down in that sort of a circumstance, and so take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. But when that doesn't happen, make it a slog, make it a defensive contest, because you know it's 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 a, a challenging team to figure out. But as as Rob said, the fact that they can hopefully hang their hat on defense might give them a few easier buckets a game than that Memphis team had, and I don't think that's going to be enough to like put them into a strong seed. But I think it puts them into consideration for a playoff spot at the bare minimum. Just from watching Rondo and Dallas, like. When he's on the team, it kind of has to be his team. 
Like yeah. Carlisle's like, you got to play my style. Rondo was like, I'm not going to do that. Like for me to be effective, I have to do what I want to do. So it's I, just such a big ask. I nearly wrote a piece for the Athletic last year. I I never pitched it. I was just going to write it about how Rajon Rondo was one of this narrow group of players in the league where the team takes his personality no matter where he is on the depth chart for the minutes he's in the game. Like there there are certain guys where that's just true. And it's strange that Rondo, considering his pretty rapidly deteri- rapid deterioration in play, is still that guy, but he is absolutely still that guy. I think he definitely is. But, I mean, to your point, Danny, I think having him and Holiday does put them in a good position to do just what you were saying, which is run selectively and pull it out if it's not there. And I think Rondo, for, for all of his faults, does push the pace a little bit. He does like to get out in the open court. I think he's very turnover prone once he gets out there and not a great finisher. So that's kind of its own can of worms. But I think he could selectively give this team some juice. You know, he's not a guy who I would want to be relying on. I think he's an awkward fit in a lot of ways. But if you're talking about taking a defense first team and giving them a little bit of pace, I think he could be a reasonable answer to that. You just have to hope that, you know, as you guys were saying, he doesn't kind of overtake and and absorb the rest of this team's identity in the process. And that's where I guess you lean on the fact that he and DeMarcus have whatever relationship that the Pelicans think that they have, because you're you're really going to need him to be able to facilitate and get the ball to these guys as they need it. And then there's the other thing we haven't talked about yet. It's just the Pelicans doctors. Every year, it seems like they have injuries. They've already lost Solomon Hill. I don't know if you follow the NFL, but there was something that happened where they misdiagnosed two of the Saints doctors, who are also Pelicans doctors, misdiagnosed an injury really badly. And like they cost the guy a significant amount of time. And they got an older team with guys who are injury prone. So who knows if they can even stay on the floor? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely going to be a challenge. Before we move on, I want to tell you a little bit about Bombfell, which is an easier way for men to get better clothes. And I can speak to this from personal experience. I was really impressed with the process. So basically, the way it works is that you sign up and you give them as much or as little information about about kind of what you're looking for and everything else like that as you as you like. But I think it's a good idea to input more information. And then they match you up one to one with a stylist. And when them, it's it's a really great process because they send you kind of a proposal of what to get and you can set guidelines in terms of what kind of clothing you want, what sort of price point you want. And then they will find things. They'll send out basically a proposal. You can give feedback at that point and then you actually get the material, but you only pay for what you actually keep. So then you have another step in the process. So like for me, I got a polo shirt that I really liked. I got a dress shirt that I really liked, but then the pants, I like the look of them, but the sizing was a little bit off. So I exchanged them for something that fit in better. So it was an incredibly friendly process. I was blown away by it. Got pieces that are going to be a part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. I'm guessing you'll see at least one of them, probably both of the shirts on real on the Twitter NBA show. And then you can go for all sorts of things. They have accessories. They have all different types of articles of clothing. And you can give them input. If there are colors you like, if there are fits you like, if there are cuts you like, you can, you can do all that. Or you can leave it more open. I left my first one more open and was impressed by what they put out there. And so you can check it out. You go to bombfell.com slash realgm, B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L.com slash realgm, just like this show. And if you go that way, you tell me you came from us, and you get $25 off your first order. And again, a huge benefit of the program is that you only pay for the things that you that you choose to, that you want to buy, and everything else you can go through it. So it's it's riskless in many senses, and you get a lot of input in the process, as much input as you like. So you don't have to take my word for it. You can check it out yourself. Bombfell.com slash realgm. Bombfell. Open and close. 
are there any other offseason moves that that you guys feel like that we need to talk about and in terms of in terms of these teams well we got to talk about dennis smith and dallas yeah that's true. i feel like he's probably the front runner for rookie of the year at the start of the season just in terms of the role he'll have the minutes he'll have the opportunity he'll have it has been surprising to a point that rick carlisle has been so effusive about his his praise for dennis smith because i never think of going back to his days even in indiana i never think of carlisle as being that guy but i love dennis smith i'm been a huge fan of his you know i i liked him in high school he impressed me at that point and coming back from injury the way that he did and he's a phenomenal talent and it looks like you guys know better than i do it looks like he's going to at least start the season with the keys to the kingdom which is incredibly exciting to to your point danny i mean when i hear carlisle talk about dennis smith i really get like body snatchers chills in terms of is this the same person did did he go to an s seminar like what is going on in rick carlisle's life that brought about this drastic change and how he talks about (laughs) young players but i mean you have to think that, that a lot of that is just coming from smith himself and you watch him on the floor and you can see a lot of why i mean he is an he's an energizing talent and not just in terms of a guy who could be really fun to watch and and could be a guy whose whose trajectory is interesting to see but I mean, he could be a, a pretty transformational piece for them, just in terms of being the kind of player who's been really successful in Dallas. I mean, if you look at what J.J. Barea has done, for example, over the years, and you put a bigger, more athletic player who has a wider range of ability into that kind of role, you can see where things start to open up. And so they're going to be, again, a, like a lot of teams in this uh, in this division, in a pretty weird place this year. But Smith, I think, should be a pretty round positive in his first year. And I think Carlisle has given us a taste of that. I mean, I think the biggest thing is just the game's going to be really easy for him because of the space they play in. I remember like the last few years, whenever the Mavs have played the Jazz, like the Jazz have had more talent generally, but just like Utah has to work for all their points so much. It's such a grind. It's such a slog. Like when Dallas plays New Orleans, New Orleans has the best players, but everything in Dallas is so easy because everyone can shoot threes. The floor is wide open. The ball just moves. Whereas everything in New Orleans is going to be very difficult. Everything is like a slog. It's a grind. And for Smith, when you play with Dirk at the five and Barnes at the four, there's just no way to guard that. Not with a guy that big and fast with that much space. Also, like just the structure, as you said, of their team means that Smith is going to have... It's not necessarily, I would say, that he has to do less. It's that he has to do it in, in more favorable circumstances. Because something I've been grappling with for the second half of the summer is that I, I was a huge fan of Dennis Smith, had him third on my board, and was you know openly debating him versus Lonzo. Like, that's how much I, I like both of those guys, but I really like Dennis. And so you have that, but then you also have to factor in that young point guards generally don't do well in the NBA. They have to figure a lot out. They have to go on the fly. And so part of what is intriguing to me about Dennis Smith this year is how do those two things reconcile? Like, is he so talented that he's the exception that proved the rule? Is Carlisle's system so favorable and having Dirk there and everything else so favorable? Or is it going back to the having a teenage point guard or, you know, early 20s point guard that those guys just generally take some time? And so how that works out is also going to probably define whether Dallas is a true playoff contender or not. But, you know, it's it's always nice to get a, a new a new bit of data for that sample. Well, I mean, you look at how well Yogi played in that same system. For me, it's Smith that's going to be on defense. He's going to get destroyed defensively. And so that's going to matter of how much is Carla going to care about that, how much will he just lose his mind at some point for a bad rotation and just pull him off the game. Because that's where it's going to really... It's really on defense. And for the Mavs, it's just, is Noel plugged in? Is he happy? What's his role going to be? 
That's going to be the question because they really got him to have to have him playing some great defense to be any kind of contender. I think one thing that makes me hopeful about Smith is just that in summer league, especially, which you know is always kind of a suspect place to evaluate talent. But one thing that impressed me about his play there was just how kind of how poised and controlled he was for a guy who was who's so fast, who who could obviously mm-hmm. move past a lot of people on the floor, who could do the thing that all the other summer league guards do, where it's just kind of drive and drive and drive and rack up points and and you know woo, you know woo over the crowd. And you could do that. You know, he could certainly do that if he wanted to. But there was a lot of kind of start a drive and pull it back out and move the move the ball around and kind of get into some kind of offense, whatever it is they were running out there. And that makes me a little hopeful that he has some things that other rookies don't, especially for a guy his age where he's not pushing all the time. And a guy who I think could win over Carlisle consistently over the course of the year. Now, as John said, defense is going to be a problem. It always is a problem for young guards. And especially, you know, if, if you're if the person evaluating you and setting the standard is Rick Carlisle, that's going to be a pretty harsh standard to meet. But offensively, I think he could be a really nice potential starter for them or day one starter for them if they want to go that route. And I'm, I'm really optimistic about what he could do in that offense. So Rob, at, at Summer League, Jonathan and I talked about, I, I, made a, I made a passing reference to the idea that Dennis Smith is definitely going to be the opening night starter. And that's I have no problem with that. But the, the question was, how long is he going to be the starter until Carlisle gets mad and pulls him the first time? Like, what, what Do you have a guess for the first, the first game that he doesn't start? Not due to injury, but due to Carlisle just being mad? You know what? I'm going to trust in Rick Carlisle's new leaf. I'm going to trust in whatever self-help regimen he went through in the last couple months. I think he's going to be, you know, if he starts day one, I think he's going to be the, the perpetual starter for them. Yeah, it's not starting as much as like just playing Berea and Yogi like 20 minutes one night and playing like 10. I think is much more likely. Yeah, I guess that that probably is more likely. But I don't know. I'm still going to stake my claim. I made I made it made the reference in July. I'm going to do it again. That at some point in November, he's just going to get mad, and for one game, he's not going to sit. It won't be as impactful as sitting Nerlens Noel for that one game, for that game. Or actually, he sat twice, and then he didn't fit the starter criteria, got a lower qualifying offer, and everything happened with Nerlens this year. But you know, I I, I don't know. I, I feel like Carlisle can't have. He can't turn over a new leaf in that way permanently. That's just not the way it is. But we'll go into the next question. And, I mean, Chris Paul is the obvious one here, but if you have anybody else that you think is notable in terms of best newcomer to his team, because other than Chris Paul, I think you're getting into a, a, a much more limited list, but kind of an interesting one. Well, one guy that, that I'm kind of curious to see, and really to see how he is coming back from injury, is Mario Chalmers back with the Grizzlies. And some of that's just because the Grizzlies' offense was so bad whenever Mike Conley was out of the game last year. You know, they really tried to, to trust in Wade Baldwin. They tried kind of cobbling together a bunch of weird point guard alternatives and none of them worked you would hope that this year like well, i guess it's twofold you can you can lean on mario chalmers supposing that he's some semblance of his former self also coming back from a pretty significant injury i believe it's achilles and then you've got tyreek evans coming in who could at least do some of your ball handling for you that combination i think makes me a little more hopeful for memphis being a a more balanced team this year they, they really had that struggle where you can try to stagger Gasol and Conley as much as you can, but those guys build on each other's games so much, you really want them on the floor together. And so having another ball handler who can spell Conley without the team falling apart, you know, that's the difference of, you know, nine points per 100 possessions last season. I think that's a pretty significant thing for them. Yeah. I want to point out real quickly, uh, Andrew Harrison played 72 games last year as a point guard and shot 
32.5% from the field. Like, that is just incredible. How do you do that? I mean, if it's going to happen on one team, it's going to happen on the Grizzlies, though maybe now that's the Pelicans who take the mantle. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are intrigued by Ben McElmore just because the whole thing about being in being in the bizarro world that is the Sacramento Kings and how those guys who are on those dysfunctional teams handle being other places. We're going to probably see that a little bit more with Stauskas this year. So how that works. And then we, I realized after this, so, so for me, the top two guys I, who are contenders, and it's gonna, a lot of it's going to depend on who plays well and all that, are actually P.J. Tucker and Luke Richard and Bob Mute. But I realized that we can't give short shrift if this is going to be at least partially an off-season review. We should talk about the Chris Paul trade at least a little bit because what was shocking to me about it was that I think you could make a very good argument, and I would make this argument myself, that the Clippers received more for Chris Paul who was basically a free agent if he wanted who was a free agent if he wanted to be he decided not to be they got more for him than the Pacers got for Paul George and that the Minnesota Timberwolves got for Jimmy Butler the only fringe part there is getting the getting a high lottery pick but i would rather have the package that that the Clippers got for Chris Paul than either of those. Yeah, and especially considering that Paul's basically on a one-year deal, which I guess you're mitigating some of the risk, but when you're talking about a superstar talent, you know, that's a, a precarious place to be. I think that was one of the more interesting parts of that trade to me was that Houston kind of signaling its confidence in being able to retain this talent. And we've seen this with James Harden where I feel like the Rockets, maybe more than any other team in the league, have done everything possible to give James Harden more money, to give James Harden more years, to do everything they can to keep him happy because they prioritized that level of talent for so long. And so that now they brought in Paul who, you know, this is a trial in a lot of respects, but I think they're very confident in their ability to show Paul, this is how we treat high-end talent, and this is why you should want to stay here. And so that's a really interesting thing for a guy who who really isn't committed to them in a meaningful sense, and who they gave up so much, as you said, Danny, to get in the first place, but who makes a lot of sense in terms of things you're replacing, in terms of the players and the minutes who he's going to be filling. I think, obviously, Chris Paul isn't going to do whatever Sam Decker did, but you can bring in guys to do that. You know, you can you can use those open roster spots. You can bring in PJ Tucker and Luke Mbamute and fill whatever minutes and interest you would have gotten out of Sam Decker. But Paul fills a lot of needs for them. I think some people are, are getting caught up on you know who's controlling the ball, how much, and losing sight of the fact that he and Harden are, are so good off the ball individually as well. They're going to have to strike some kind of balance, but in, in terms of a skill and talent perspective, I mean, there's there's really nothing to dislike about that kind of move. I'm, I have one thing I'm curious about. Just for, I'm curious y'all's opinion about this. Like, obviously, if you can get Chris Paul, you can get him, and it was kind of out of their hands. But if you're trying to beat Golden State, wouldn't you rather have Paul George with James Harden than Chris Paul? It probably depends on what you would have to give up. And that's a case where Pat Beverly starts to matter a lot because obviously you want a guard who you can throw at what Golden State's bring to the table between Steph and Clay. And I think that's one area where Chris is really strong and can can shield James from some responsibilities that he doesn't want to have and the Rockets don't want him to have. And then, you know, it also would depend on your capacity to also can you also get another wing guy like a Tucker or an Mbamute? Obviously George eliminates some of the need for that, but I think that the depth issue is still kind of there. But obviously I mean I, I see where you're coming from, given that if you can put you know, Harden and Ariza and and Paul George out there together. That's kind of a strong crux of a team for dealing with Golden State and really challenging them. I, I think that the argument is certainly there. I mean, I think I probably would prefer Paul George in that situation, but 
there may have been some availability issues or some some trade issues. I'm not sure that the Rockets would really have the kinds of pieces without giving up Clint Capella uh, that the Pacers would want. Yeah, that's true. But I, to me, like I look at like you say, well, Chris Paul can help James Harden against most teams. He can, but I feel like against Steph and Clay, you just have to have length on those guys. Because if you're smaller than them, they're just going to shoot over the top of you regardless. Like, I'm not really sure Chris Paul makes them better against Golden State is what I'm saying. When it comes down to it, I don't trust him against any of those guys. CP has defended Steph pretty well over the years. There are some weird things in terms of the sample there. I mean, because the last time they played in the playoffs was so long ago, and Paul did a nice job in that series, but the Warriors still got close despite not having Andrew Bogut. And since then, you know, there are the, the videos, like the vine of Chris Paul, like falling over basically twice as Steph dribbled around him and everything like that. And But I think he, you know, minute to minute, possession to possession, he does a decent job. But I think of the Chris Paul thing more as a ceiling play offensively because you run into this issue with James Harden and and Rob did a nice job of kind of laying out what the Rockets have done in terms of catering to Harden. But a team with him is going to have these ebbs and flows because Harden just, he's not at 11 every second of every game. That's just not the way he is. That's not the way he's ever going to be. And I think what Chris Paul does is he says, okay, even in those moments that J- that James Harden is not on, we're still going to have one of the three best offenses in the league. And I could see those guys rubbing each other the wrong way. I could see it absolutely not working. But it's a different kind of bet, you know, that usually a team takes on the personality of their best player. And I think we saw in games five and six of that series last year that sometimes taking on the personality of James Harden isn't a good thing for the Rockets. So... There's a very real chance that this isn't going to work, that this is a caustic mix. But the ceiling play of what if it does, I think it's worth it for them. See, I think to me, it'll definitely work in the regular season. To me, the ceiling is the question against, because pretty much everything you do now is how do you play Golden State, right? Everything a team like Houston or San Antonio does now is how do you match up with Golden State? They'll be there for like the next four or five years, pretty much. So I guess to me, I wonder... Could Chris Paul make someone like Troy Williams better? Because I look at PJ and Mbamute and Ariza. These are guys, they're just not going to be guarded by the Rock, by the Warriors. Like, Mbamute is not going to be guarded. PJ Tucker's going to get open shots all day. Can they find more bigger, taller, 3 and D wings? And to me, like Troy Williams, this is a guy, if I have two great point guards, can they make a guy like that good? Because Williams is an incredible athlete. I don't know if y'all watched him much. He didn't play much this year, but in college, this guy's like 6'7", got a 40-inch vertical. He can get up, and he can fly around the court. If Chris Paul can make someone like that good, I think that is where it kind of makes more sense. It's like building up lesser valuable younger players. Because I don't really see, as much as Luke and PJ play defense... I don't think they can get them enough offense against Golden State. I mean, I guess it would depend on just how bald that some of these other defenses are being and abandoning those guys because Luke can shoot in those situations. I think PJ can be a little a little spottier, but if you're just talking about wide, you know, wide open alone in the corner, that's a shot that I feel totally comfortable with Mbamute taking. The question is, you know, if you if you're able to give him any kind of pressure and chase him off the line like the Warriors are so good at doing, he's kind of stuck. And so that's an area where I totally agree. If you can get Troy Williams up to the point where you feel comfortable with him playing in your rotation, I think most of the issues holding him back to this point have been kind of freelance related where coaches don't quite feel like he falls into what they want him to do, which if you're a role player is, is kind of a kind of an awkward spot to be. But if he can figure out kind of how to please the people who are deciding his minutes and while also being effective, 
he's a guy who can definitely benefit from this kind of arrangement. A guy who could definitely uh, benefit from playing alongside Chris Paul. And I mean, I'm if I'm Clint Capella too, I think I'm giddy with the possibilities of now having two guys who can just throw great passes to me all the time on pick and roll. I think a lot of those guys kind of around the perimeter are going to tick up just to be a little bit better. You know, Nene could be a little bit more efficient even than he was last season in which he was great. I think Ariza, he is a pretty limited offensive player, but maybe there's a couple more cuts open to him by having another playmaker on the floor. I think there's some transformative elements there just by having Chris involved that could make this thing pretty interesting. I guess my other other question is, right now, obviously Golden State is one, but let's say, again, the second round is Houston versus San Antonio. How do y'all kind of see that playing out, That every match of that series with all these new pieces? Well, I think the big challenge for San Antonio now is just they don't have enough perimeter defensive talent to shut down all of Houston's options at the same time. You know, they can try to slog it out and make it nasty, but especially if, if D'Antoni can run a little bit of a stagger with Paul and, and Harden, so then they're going to have some minutes separate. I think that the Rockets, I would have them as the favorites in that series. But again, San Antonio has, they punched over their weight last year. So I wouldn't be super confident in it. So I'd go in that direction. And something else I wanted to bring up briefly, which ties on with this, because actually I think that series is where this becomes most relevant, is how do they handle Eric Gordon? Because if Ariza or Mba Mute, you know, one of those guys can be kind of the small forward on defense. And then, you know, if they, however you want to handle it on offense, if they can use Eric Gordon in some of these unusual combinations, like let's say Gordon can guard, like I was actually thinking about putting him on Draymond just as a really weird idea, just mm. like throwing him out there and putting putting Ariza and Bamute, whoever, on, on Durant. Do you presumably do that with Kawhi as well? Like, I don't think that's going to work, but I hope that D'Antoni tries it just because, as you said, you know, getting some, if that offensively would be just remarkable for them. But wouldn't you need to have Harden on Draymond? Like, who, who would Harden guard in that scenario if you're going to put Gordon on Draymond? Uh, I was thinking he would guard Clay, but you're right that there are some serious weaknesses there because Harden is not, he's not enthusiastic about running through screens for 20 seconds. Yeah, it would just wear him out if he's guarding Clay, I would think. If just give up wide open shots, if not. That's true. That's a good point. Guys, guarding the Warriors seems pretty hard. <laughs> That's also true. But but so, Rob, how, how are you thinking about, because I hadn't spent that much time doing it, how are you thinking about a Rockets-Spurs series right now? Man, I mean, I think the Rockets just have a little too much for them to handle. And some, you know, even some of the problems we've been discussing where, and I think bringing up Gordon is a great part of it, where, you know, the matchups in that series, depending on how they break out, I think there's a lot of possibility for, for Paul and Harden and Gordon to share the floor together. And if you're putting Ariza at the four and Capella at the five, I think that's a really tough outfit for the for the Spurs to counter. And you're going to have to lean on, you know, one of Danny Green and Kawhi, and I guess both of them, to, to handle Paul and Harden, which... I think puts the put the puts the Spurs in in a in a delicate balancing act in terms of their ability to cover all those guys at once in a way while they're also contributing to team defense. It's it's really really tough, and I think some of what's going to make Houston so difficult this year is the dynamism and going from one action to the next. Where I mean, there's going to be some awkwardness at first, some my turn your turn kind of stuff that we always see with these kinds of teams. But ultimately, I think you know one of the strengths of Mike D'Antoni's offense was always going from a Steve Nash pick and roll into a Leandro Barbosa pick and roll on the opposite side of the floor. And this ability to kind of go across the court and create another action really quickly from a player who was also a good shooter. And so when you, when you're talking about these two guys playing off of one another and changing directions and sides of the floor so quickly, I think you take away a lot of what San Antonio does well and has in their size. You know, if you're, if you're going to insist on playing Powell and LaMarcus together, 
you're really stretching those guys thin and running them ragged if they're crossing the court constantly trying to defend all these actions. So San Antonio is going to be a good defensive team. They just kind of are that at this point. I, I Somehow it, it, it kind of defies their roster in a lot of sense. They don't always have great defensive personnel, but I'm, I'm beyond doubting that system and that coaching staff. But I do wonder just how they would keep up in a series. I think one thing to keep in mind, too, is the way San Antonio played Houston last year where they really sold out three-point line in the rim. That's where having Chris Paul could be huge because obviously Chris Paul loves the 18-foot mid-range shot. And that was a shot like San Antonio pretty much dared Houston to shoot. And I think having Paul there does make them way more versatile offensively. I think you got you kind of saw D'Antoni or Maury Ball's little flaw where if you're just, t- just taking two shots, the defense knows it too eventually. And a good defense will make you take that third kind of shot. That's so why having Paul could be really big is just that 18-foot pull-up J. And I'm kind of curious to see how many of those shots he takes playing in Houston next year. Well, and, and I, I, mean, I, I think back to something, I think it was Ian Levy's, the, Ian Levy's the person who I give credit to for it in my head. There were a couple of people, I think Seth Partners talked about this too, about how, you know, mid-range shots are generally, they're a part of the game, but one of the big competitive advantages you can have, and LaMarcus was actually one of the players who, who inspired this originally, Dirk is another one, of course, who giving those shots to capable players really can help your offense. And so if the only guy shooting mid-range shots is Chris Paul, they're going to look pretty good because Chris Paul can make those shots. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the best mid-range shooters of all time. And so when you're talking, and a guy who can create that shot so easily and in some ways kind of defaults to it. You know, when, when Chris Paul runs pick and roll now, he's not really looking to get all the way to the rim. He's looking to either throw that lob, uh, throw a pocket pass, or get to that little curling mid-range jumper. But even just having him around, and we've kind of touched on this in a variety of ways, just having him and Harden together. For one, I think it, it kind of alleviates a lot, you know, some of the pressure and some of the effort that those guys have to put into every possession creating, which I think should help them theoretically, at least in terms of being able to balance out their defense. You know, Paul's a guy who, if you're relying on Chris Paul to be your, your primary ball handler, a lead scorer like he was in the playoffs with Blake Griffin out, and you're asking him to defend really good players – it's just going to wear him down over the course of a game and especially over the course of a playoff series. If you have him and Harden able to kind of take some of that off of each other's plate, I think they could both be in a really healthy place. And and really what you're hoping to avoid is just that kind of elimination game scenario where James Harden completely no-shows. And if you have Chris Paul there, all of a sudden that's not such a big deal. It's just kind of a down game for James Harden. But when Harden is your only star, that's devastating. I think to having Paul, like, Maybe it kind of forces Harden to play defense. He he has the physical tools to be a decent defender, and now he has a guy who can share the responsibility with. And I think maybe in some ways, like in a Golden State series, maybe you challenge Harden. You say, I'm going to put you on Steph, or I'm going to put you on Durant even, and you're going to have to play defense. And just kind of like push him on that, because that's really... And that gives him a lot more options if he's not going to be a defensive minus out there. If he can just hold his own sometimes and just compete every night on defense, it makes him a better team. Something else I was thinking about in terms of a potential Rockets-Spurs series, this doesn't connect as much with your Harden point now, though that is interesting, is that the Rockets now, with the additions they made this summer, they're one of the only teams in the NBA that has a lot of small forward, powerful, like a lot of wing-sized guys they can throw at these elite small forwards. So... Kawhi, Durant, LeBron, because they have P.J. Tucker, Trevor Ariza, and Luke Richard and Bamute. And that's a huge benefit to them. And San Antonio, you know, they have two two elite defenders in their starting five 
in Danny Green and Kawhi. But Danny Green is, you know, he's more of a 2-1 defender. He can slide onto threes when necessary. And so they can't throw as many looks because they're going to need him to do other things. And at least at Houston, especially if Chris Paul can hold his own against Steph Curry and whichever guy San Antonio is kind of putting in that offensive role at the guard position, they they don't ha- they don't have to give Harden tough defensive assignments unless they unless they want to against teams other than the Warriors. So I think the Harden will have a place to be against San Antonio because they have so many guys to throw at Kawhi. No, that's a great point, especially, you know, so much of this in a playoff series just comes down to variety and being able to to keep guys off balance, to be able to not let Kawhi or Durant kind of puzzle you out and figure out your coverage. And so even if you're even if just the subtle differences between Ariza's defense and Tucker's defense and, you know, what you're able to get against those guys and where you're able to find comfortable spots, you know, if you're posting up Ariza and finding success, you might not be able to do the same thing against Tucker. He's just too big and too strong. And so that flexibility, I think, is really important. And it's one area where when you're talking about building a roster, there's kind of two tempting directions. One is to get a lot of very similar interchangeable players, and one is to get a lot of very different flexible players to give you options. I think the Rockets have kind of struck a nice balance between those two things, where they have guys of a certain type who are going to be useful in those matchups, but they also, in the broader sense, have the capacity to field a ton of different kinds of lineups to address almost any situation. I would say looking at their roster right now, they got five centers. I wonder if that kind of changes over the course of the season. They have a lot of guys who probably can't ever play for them, so we'll see how that goes. They got Clint Nene, and they have three young guys. And they have Tarek Black, and they also have these two young guys, Joe Chi. Maybe he can play, I don't know, and then Onuaku from Louisville. But I think what they're going to do in that sense is those are regular season guys. You know, that that'll, that'll balance it out. They do have the risk when you have that many of your 15 roster spots. And, and she can probably play some on the, on, at the four, so he can help them a little bit there. But they're going to run a narrow rotation in the playoffs. D'Antoni always does. So the risk there is that you just have too much committed to one position in terms of if a wing gets hurt. But, you know, I think that's just a risk that they're going to have to deal with because other than apparently Tony Allen, there just weren't that many perimeter guys available for the minimum that would have really helped them. Another big picture thing with the Rockets that makes me kind of hopeful for their chances is that, you know, all of these super teams that have come together, they all have kind of their own origin stories. They'll have their own kind of impetuses for bringing the players together. This one, to me, at least from the information that I have and have heard, seems very self-engineered on the part of Paul and Harden, where these were two guys who clearly wanted to play together. Sometimes that doesn't always go well, but I think the fact that they kind of instigated it in some ways and brought this possibility to the table gives them a lot of investment in terms of making it work. You know, this isn't a case where, you know, somebody traded for Dwight Howard and you just kind of have to figure it out. This is two guys who, who picked another star player, said, I can and want to play with that guy. And I think we have the games that can fit together. And so just that kind of agency in the situation, I think, gives them a lot of reason to make this thing really work. I guess the other thing we have to talk about at some point is this Carmelo thing. Do we think that's really a possibility? It's a a possibility. I I don't really see how a trade works with these partners because it looks like the Knicks are being smart and saying we don't want Ryan Anderson because he doesn't really make any sense for them. So I think it, I think eventually Melo's going to get bought out. That's my instinct on it. And if he hmm. does get bought out, then sure. I mean, Houston's as good a location as any, and especially now with 
Cleveland adding Jay Crowder, I think you can make an argument that Houston probably has a clearer role for Melo, even if it's imperfect, a clearer role for him of the truly high-end teams to for him to just kind of have the rest of this season to figure out what he wants to do long-term. I wonder if they can make some work with Sacramento and Ryan Anderson, because he's a Sacramento guy. They want to win now. They have a pretty unsettled four rotation. Maybe there's they can do a three-teamer or something. I don't know. But it seems like that's probably the only avenue to move Anderson at this point. That will be, you know, regardless of whether Melo is ultimately traded or bought out, that'll be kind of an interesting gut check for this Rockets team in terms of how comfortable are they feeling in terms of all the pieces fitting together? And do they feel that as, you know, if it's going really well, do they see that as a sign where, okay, we can accommodate Melo and bring him in? Or if it's going really well, do we just not want to mess with it when Melo can be kind of a temperamental piece in some ways? To me, with the way Golden State is, I would almost have to do it just because that does up your upside at least. And as I like this team, but I just can't seem to be in Golden State right now. So I think they still have to make more gambles. And the the last thing I want to say on the Rockets, I, I, I agree with that, that you, you do it, but you, you I, I wouldn't say you necessarily give up a ton of resources in a trade to make it happen is really the the potential moving piece here in terms of what Chris Paul did by picking up his I can't I think his was a player option, not an ETO, but by doing that is that I, I think the Rockets will want to bring him back. Maybe the price tag becomes an issue. But if Chris Paul decides this isn't working what he ends up doing is fascinating because there isn't this is not probably not going to be your I'm working on a piece about this where there are these really high end places that just have money unless you know he goes to the Lakers with somebody else which would be ridiculous and hilarious and amazing after all these years and the, of course the the trade but so it's like what I, I think one of the reasons that this might be smart for the rockets beyond all the other ones is they can tell him if you're not going here like you're just going to be spending your golden years somewhere where you're not competing for a championship and is that really what you want to do and chris paul you know he's going to turn 33 during this these playoffs so i don't think that teams are going to be falling all over themselves to clear cap space to bring him in well, I, mean, I think it's just the Lakers, the whole LeBron thing. That would be like what he has is his back pocket, is his leverage. Yeah, I mean, if that's what the Lakers want to do, I mean, I think you're committing a lot to the short term with that. But again, that, then that puts some pressure on Lonzo. Like, and you know, who who wants to go there in which in which affiliation? I mean, if Lonzo's good, then I, I think that as and I I said Chris Paul is one of I think I had him fifth in my best players in the NBA last year. Little thing that I did with Nate. But, you know, wh- how does he fit with a guy like that? And I guess we're going to get a good a good test of that with him. You know, we saw it a little bit with Blake, but James Harden will give us a better calibrator for if it would really work with LeBron at this stage in Chris Paul's career. Well, I mean, not to get too sidetracked, but I've always kind of liked Lonzo as a two with Same our here. point guard. Because he can shoot it. I mean, hopefully he can shoot. Who knows? But, like, he's a bigger guy. He's not super fast to guard one. So play him off the ball as a two as a ball mover. And it's not really what the Lakers want to do. It's what LeBron wants to do. Because if LeBron's going to L.A., it's his team. He dictates terms. He tells them who's being traded, who's being signed. And him, obviously, Chris Paul and LeBron are tied, tied for forever. Yeah, that element, I mean, that element to me is bigger than the money, where I don't really see Houston drawing any kind of hard financial line that would push Chris out of town after doing this, other than if this year is just a complete disaster. Uh, And so really, to me, the things that would entice Chris would have to be kind of extracurricular. It would have to be something where, you know, if LeBron calls, you you take that call. And I mean, that would be a hell of a team to see one way or another. But I, I really don't see Houston being in that kind of position where that would be the hang-up for them. Now, 
are they going to pay for that four years down the line when Chris is at you know the the end of a, a max or a near max deal? I mean, that's going to get really expensive between him and Harden really quickly. But that's kind of what they bought themselves into, I think, with this trade. And I guess we should point out too that they have a new owner, and like ownership is obviously the on, on all these teams is like a huge part of it. And this guy Tim Fur did I don't say his name, but he just spent two point five billion dollars to this team. I'm sure he wants to win right now, would be my guess. My guess is the, the checkbook is open in Houston. That's true, and they don't have that many other options. So it's it's not like they could say, oh, we're going to throw that money at somebody else. And, I mean, Maury does have – he usually keeps flexibility enough, and at that point, Anderson will be a year later. But I think that's a really good point. Uh, I, let, let's move on, unless unless you have something, Rob, on that that you want to mention. You could kind of jump to the next question do that. Can we agree that by acclamation, the next question I always do is, Rookie, you're most excited to see that it's just it's just Dennis Smith? Is there anybody else that's even considered? No. Yeah, I think things like, especially in this division, I'm just looking right now, no one really jumps out yeah. to me. I'll throw out, uh, as a guy who might help New Orleans, is Frank Jackson from Duke. When he gets he back. He can shoot the... Yeah, he can shoot. Oh, what, what's wrong with him? I don't even remember. He has a broken foot again, I think. Oh, geez. But he can shoot threes, and they need guys who can shoot threes. So he might help them, but obviously Dennis Smith is the guy in that yeah. one. Yeah, and I'm excited to see. It's not even necessarily a rookie, but which young guy in Memphis kind of takes on, because they're going to need a young guy, uh, like a young big to step up. It might be Rab. It could be. And then who does that? And I like Dylan Brooks, too. So like we could see if that if that ends up working out. But let's move on to the, to the season preview part. And I like to do this just in terms of ranking the teams one to five. It's generally you can use regular season record, like who, how you think that's going to fall out. But if you want to use something else, just tell us what you want to use. To me, they're kind of one and the same. I think Houston is the best team in the division. I think they're probably the better playoff team than San Antonio, but San Antonio is a clear number two. And that's where there's kind of a chasm after those two for me. Three and four are very close to me between Memphis and New Orleans. I like Memphis a little bit better just because the Grizzlies will always improbably win like five games that they shouldn't win. Uh, so to me, they're a little bit of a safer playoff bet. I also just I know how their pieces work together a little bit better than I know how New Orleans works together. And I think Dallas is in that place at the bottom where they're really not that far from New Orleans in the grand scheme of things. And I think they're going to be competitive in a lot on a lot of nights and with a lot of teams. But I, I don't think they're really the, the list of bubble teams is too long at this point for them to kind of force their way in. I think to me with Memphis, it's just Chandler Parsons. Like, if we have any, if he could like ever become the player he was in Dallas, they're a pretty interesting team. If he can't, it's just hard to see how they're even they're going to be. It's just hard to see it if he doesn't play well. If he can't be anything resembling who he was, they have too much committed in him, too much invested in him. For him, he was arguably like one of the worst players. I mean, he definitely was one of the worst players in the league last year, and he's making like twenty five million dollars a year or something. I mean, I think for me, Houston, I think with Chris Paul, they're going to maximize the regular season. I see them as like a 58-60 win team, possibly. I wonder about them in the playoffs. I wonder about their supporting cast. I feel like they're all pretty limited after Harden and Paul on one side of the ball or the other. So I worry about them in a playoffs, in a later round playoff series. And I would say for me, it goes Houston-San Antonio, one and two, pretty interchangeable. Memphis at three. In New Orleans, I wanted to like them, but there's such a narrow window of them to be good. There's such there's so many like potential pitfalls to their rotation that they could fall into that it cost them games, plus their health situation. I could see New Orleans and Dallas at four and five being very, very close, despite having Davis, who should be amazing this year, obviously. So I'll say 
I'll I'll put it in groups. I'll say one and two are Houston, San Antonio. Three is Memphis if they're healthy. If Parsons can play, if he can't play, I can see three, four, and five being pretty close together. I'm pretty close with you guys. Uh, to me, the I'm going to still tentatively, and I think the difference with this is going to be injuries, but I have San Antonio above Houston as a regular season team. I, I agree that Houston is a superior playoff team, but what we've seen from San Antonio is that they, they just out-execute teams in the regular season, and they're just going to, you know, they'll dominate bad teams everywhere. They'll dominate at home. And that'll be enough. And so the question really to me is whether the Rockets can go past them rather than was Santonio. Like, I think Santonio is going to think their over under was set at like 55 or something like that. Think they'll blow through that. But Houston, you know, if, if they can put it together quickly, if the adjustment period is shorter and they stay healthy, they could easily win in the 60s. Like, I don't, I don't have any concern that they could. It's just whether they will and whether they have that motivation. And so the, those, yeah, one and two there. And I think three, four, five is pretty close. I was going to have, you know, I think Memphis, New Orleans is pretty close, but and partially swung by the Tony Allen thing, but also partially just because I can see more pathways for New Orleans to be very good as opposed to Memphis, where it's just like they're going to be Memphis. So I'm going to put New Orleans third, Memphis fourth, and Dallas fifth. But I could see those bottom three teams going in any order, just depending on if Dennis Smith blows up, then they could move higher. And if, you know, New Orleans injury risk, as as Jonathan mentioned earlier, and just fit issues, you know, like if this just doesn't work, it's going to be bad. And I think, too, keep in mind, Boogie, is he free next year? Yeah, he's a, right? he's a free agent at the at, in 2018. Unre- I guarantee you Dallas makes a huge run on him in the offseason. So I wonder if for New Orleans, if they're sitting there like the 10th seed in January, do they start thinking, do we got to move off to Marcus now and get something for him? That's also kind of a huge question mark hanging over their squad next year okay so i think that i think we're pretty much this is probably the closest we've been into an agreement on any of these that i can remember before we get back to the season preview want to tell you about FanDuel, and fortunately for those of you who are interested in fantasy sports while we're impatiently waiting for the nba to come back you can engage yourself in FanDuel for the NFL, which just launched this weekend. And as I talked about a little bit last week, this is my first time ever doing Daily Fantasy, and I really did enjoy it. The stress level is meaningfully less because you don't have to worry about those long-term injuries. Like I was thinking about all the people who have David Johnson in in year-long fantasy leagues and everything like that. I did pretty well. I, I was in one of the bigger FanDuel contests, and I think I got like 70th, 80th percentile. So not enough to, to cash or anything like that, but still really fun. And and by opening up the whole universe, you don't have to worry about, oh man, I wanted to get that guy, but I never had the number one pick. You just have to sacrifice more in terms of salary because they give each player a salary every single time. So what you can do is you go to FanDuel.com, you click the Join Now button, and then you use the promo code REALGM, and that'll tell them, A, that you came from us, but it will also give you a free contest entry, and you can play for a share of $10,000, which is awesome. I was doing some of the smaller stuff to kind of build myself up to the bigger things, but it's it's really fun. And then if you want to put money behind it, you absolutely can. There are a lot of different ways that you can do that. And another great thing about FanDuel that I appreciated this weekend is that it's really flexible. So if you want to just do the games of a certain time period, or just want to do prime time, and you want more engagement on those, you can absolutely make that happen. And so it's not just the whole slog or whatever. You can make it work for you. If you want it to be narrow, if you want it to be broad, you can make it work for you. So again, FanDuel.com, and then you join now, and then you put the promo code REALGM, tells them you came from us, and you get an entry into a contest, play for a share of $10,000. So check it out. I really enjoyed this weekend. I'm going to keep doing it all year. So move on with another interesting question. How many teams from this division make the playoffs? 
I think it's two. I think it's just Houston and San Antonio because really with the other three, what you're talking about is among, you know, kind of in that class of teams that could or maybe couldn't make the playoffs depending on health or new fits or a variety of other factors. You're talking about maybe the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Jazz, and the Blazers. And two of those teams would have to not make the playoffs for any of these teams to get in. And I don't know that I really would bet on that considering that, you know, Memphis is really, you know, one bad Marcus All injury away or Mike Conley injury away from just completely going in the tank. New Orleans has so many questions surrounding it in addition to the medical staff issues that we've talked about. And I don't know that I'm really, really ready to put Dallas into that group just yet as a team that's really kind of pushing for that eighth spot. I just, I just have too much faith in some of these other you know, kind of fringe playoff teams in the West to, to really give the Southwest too much credit. I mean, I definitely like Denver getting in this year. Getting Millsap should be huge for them. When is Blake coming back? Do we know about that? Is that we don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the, the challenges with this is just, I think that you could see all three of the teams in the Southwest on the on the periphery. So then, but on the periphery means some very different things. So I would say like three is certainly possible but i wouldn't say that any of those teams are like at the front of the line to get those last couple playoff spots it's more like if teams fall back if they are if they're better than expected and you know that that's a weird place to be and then also consider that the pacific division right now only has one locked in playoff team i mean you have the lakers the kings and the suns that are all probably out so if this division's probably getting two. The Pacific Division's getting one, and then the Clippers are... I would say the Clippers are on the fringe, but probably ahead of the bottom three teams in this division. That Then you start to think about, yeah, maybe all five teams from the north from the Northwest do get in. I kind of like Memphis. I just feel like with Conley and Gasol, and they know who they are, they know how to play together, even with the additions they made with the continuity. And if it comes down to the end of the season, I, I do trust Memphis to figure out a way to make it work. Like And like, there's so many teams like Utah that has to play in tight spaces... As a bunch of new players. And same with New Orleans. I feel like Memphis, if they can stay healthy, which is always a question for them, but they just with those two guys are such smart players, they'll scratch and claw out of like forty three wins somehow. Yeah, that's certainly possible. And and we'll have to we'll have to see where it bears out. And when you have three teams, I think that there's always a decent chance that one of them is just way better than we thought. And in that case then I mean they have more options than like as I said with the Pacific, it's really just the Clippers unless the Lakers really impress. So yeah, I mean there there aren't that many teams in this mix, so I guess there's a decent shot. But yeah, I would say two is definitely the most likely and it's weird to have two of the three best teams two of the three best teams in the conference, but also two of the five best teams probably in the entire league, and then really no other clear-cut playoff teams in the entire division. So the last question that I like to do with this, and this can be at any level, it's not just becoming superstars because that doesn't happen that much, but so players from this division that you think can and will break out? Uh, I'll throw out there Bertans. I really liked his game last year. I feel like there's a lot of minutes for him in San Antonio. He's such a smooth shooter. I feel like when he shoots, it's going to go in most of the time. It just feels like it. He was sorry he's deceptively athletic. He can get up and dunk on people. He can move in space a little bit. I could see him having a big year in San Antonio. I feel like there's a lot of opportunities for some of these young guys to step up. And I really, I really like Bertans' game. I'm kind of hopeful that this is the season Nerlens Noel puts it all together. And some of that is, you know, obviously contract motivated and wanting to prove that he deserves an even bigger deal in the open market than Dallas is offering in the first place. But also, the bar for him isn't terribly high. I think he's a guy who, you know, some people, myself included, have been very high on in terms of some of the flashes he's shown in terms of some of his potential in some ways. But he came in for Dallas in midseason 
and played 22 minutes a game and was kind of okay for them. You know, kind of filled some of what they needed, but I think could do so in an even bigger way on a bigger scale. He's a guy who you really need to kind of rein into your system a little bit defensively just because his hands are so good. He, he instinctively kind of wants to go for steals and things and make deflections. But if you can strike the balance between that player who's so dynamic and so interesting defensively, who can get those steals and those deflections, but also while being you know an impactful rim protector, that could be a really important player for Dallas this season and, and a really important free agent going into next summer. So I think Noel has all the motivation to have a big year. I don't know. We'll see if Dallas really wants to play him and feature him that much so that he gets that much attention because they obviously are, are kind of disincentivized to do so. But I think he's he's at that spot in his career where he could start to pop a little bit. Here's something to watch with that with Noel and Dallas is because he didn't start most when he came to Dallas because the Mavs kind of they played their best with Dirk at the five Barnes at the four. So if you start Noel, you have Dirk at the four, which is pretty much not doable anymore. How slow he is. And you have Barnes the three and a Wesley Matthews the two. And those guys are both significantly better players moving down a position, playing the three and the four. And so then it's like a tricky balance to slide because the Mavs probably makes the most sense to bring Dirk off the bench. But the Mavs don't like doing that because Dirk tends to get stiff after warm-ups if he sits on the bench again. So they like getting like four or five minute stretches pulling him out. They don't want him sitting too long. They don't want him playing too long. So I, I would expect at the start of the season, they'll play all these guys together. They'll play Nerlens, Dirk, Barnes, Matthews, Dennis Smith. And I'm not sure that lineup can work. So who becomes the guy who comes off the floor and that if they have to bring Seth Curry to the starting lineup? I could easily see, especially now that the Mavs have no financial equipment to Nerlens, I could see them asking to come back off the bench again and how that would play with him in a contract year. I'm not sure, but that's something to watch in Dallas with a team that's going to be that good is how, how that four or five situation works. Well, and, and along that line, the defensive line can be a little bit fluid and Nerlens is good enough at switching and defending pick and rolls and stuff that maybe nominally, you know, he's, he's the five offensively for sure, but maybe defensively you have to put Dirk on some of the slower guys and you just let Nerlens run around and do whatever he can. And that might be his way to stay in that starting lineup because you know he wants to. Because one of the defining parts of the season for me with Dallas is how many minutes do Nerlens and Dirk play together? Because we've seen Dirk get limited centers paid before. I mean, Dwight Powell is a good example of this. There are numerous guys. Like if you, because if you're a role guy playing center with Dirk, you're just going to get wide open looks because the power forward can't help. And Dirk's going to have that respect until he retires. That's just what happens when you're the when you're an amazing seven foot jump shooter. So I want to see how all that works. And you're and you're right. Like I I, I think at this point it's either Nerlens or Wes Matthews that are the most likely guys there. And you know Wes has a player option of his own that they're going to have to deal with next year. But yeah, it very well could be Nerlens, and that would be very bad news for him because then he's playing with less cohesive talent for him, especially if the guy who's coming in is Seth Curry, who would be another guy to be useful for Nerlens to play with. I think, too, it's mainly it's with Dirk and Nerlens, and then it's like it's having Barnes and West, the two and the three, and those guys, they're just not very good at those positions anymore, speed-wise. It's just going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So I want to mention two different guys. One is that if Dennis Smith is as good as we think he's going to be, then he's going to break out in terms of more casual fans. Like we we know how how good he can be and all of that. And you know, but he went to a largely unsuccessful college. You know, NC State was pretty much a disaster when he was there, and a lot of 
casual fans don't follow high school and all that kind of stuff. So that's going to be exciting to see if he's rookie of the year, which I think he's the most likely pick for that right now. And then the other guy I want to mention is this should be the best year Clint Capella has had so far. Maybe the best year he'll ever have because he's going to be playing with great pick and roll guys all the time and probably at least solid floor spacing. So he's going to get a ton of looks offensively and then defensively. You know, there's I, I would say there's a lot of talent. You know, Chris Paul, Patrick Beverly, both good defensive point guards, and then now they added some forward depth that's intriguing. But I think this is going to be a year for him to really excel, and he's not going to be a star or anything crazy like that, but I think he could have a nice year. I mean, he's playing for a contract, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, and he he's a restricted free agent. Like, And, you know... So he's going to be competing in a weird way because Nerlens is unrestricted and you know those guys are different but they have some similarities in terms of the teams that are looking for one might be looking for the other and the Rockets are sitting are kind of sitting there freaking out because if you know we've seen the center market dry up a lot of these guys but it only takes one team to fall in love with them to make the whole rest of that team more expensive for the next 3 4 or 5 years. I'm curious would you rather have Clint or Nerlens just like no contracts just Give me a player right now for my team. I think I would rather have Clint, and some of that is, I think, it's rare to find guys who who screen and who run and who rebound as hard as he does without any demands on an offense, without any real needs in terms of kind of your team ecosystem. I think he just fills that role so perfectly, and his hands have improved to the point where I think he's a really a really nice finisher to have. And just to have that combined with the effort, combined with the size and athleticism, I really like Nerland's game. But I think we, he's still in the stage where he needs to kind of show that he can do it over bigger minutes, that he can do it for a competitive team. I think there's just kind of a higher burden of proof for Nerland's, uh, for me personally, than there is for Clint. And the other huge factor is health. You know, Nerland's has yeah. not stayed as healthy as Capella has. So if, if you're looking for a support player, having them stay healthy is actually really important because you're not putting as much strain on everybody else in your rotation. You know, that that's something that Nerland's is going to have to, hopefully the Dallas medical staff can really help him with that. But we talked about his value as a free agent. If he only plays in like 50 games this year, then that's going to be something else that kneecaps his value. One thing also I was surprised watching Neurons every night is like he's actually a pretty good passer. I guess Clint is too on those short rolls. He can make the play. Yeah, there's actually, the a, par- there's actually a parallel with Nurkic here. So it's when you when you put them in a more open system and you ask them to make pretty basic decisions, they can do a really nice job of it. It's when they when you get when things get clogged up and they get better defenders on them and everything else that they that they struggle. And what we I think what we're learning is maybe these new offense heavy lineups are going to actually help some of these fives offensively. I wonder if that's going to come back to bite the Mavs a little bit with with uh, Nerlens as well in terms of it seems like to me that they have a very clear idea of what they want out of their centers and that doesn't necessarily involve making a lot of passes, making a lot of decisions. It's it's kind of more of a minimized role. And if that's something that Nerlens feels like he wants to, to be doing on a regular basis, and I think he's shown that he can. I think he can do a little bit of elbow playmaking as well and can kind of find guys. Uh, but if that's not what Dallas is asking him to do and wanting him to do, maybe he starts to uh, to look elsewhere for those reasons as well. Mm-hmm. I really do think Dallas is going to make a run at DeMarcus. They signed his younger brother to play for their D-League. I think it's a classic Mavs, let's go for a star, whatever. Like that, 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 that's my guess. It's why they weren't like super 
worried about paying New Orleans. They think they can get the Marcus in the offseason. Whether they actually can, who knows, but they're always a very confident bunch when it comes to free agents. Well, and I mean, if, if that's really the consideration, you know, we don't know exactly who's going to be in the bidding for Cousins, but Dallas can make some arguments that, that New Orleans can, especially if New Orleans underperforms this year, because they can say, hey, look, we have these young guys, we have this upside, and with New Orleans, like they're pretty much locked into their team. So it's a, it's a risk. I mean, it would be it would be interesting. Totally fits Cuban's mo. I absolutely could see it there, and that would actually be a really fun team. You know, like, especially if they're kind of going a little bit more avant garde with everyone else. If they're playing, if their long term plan is to play Harrison Barnes at the four and Demarcus at the five, that would be really fun. Especially if they can get you know another decent draft pick and maybe get a wing there, they could make something yeah, that could that could work. And I like that because with Barnes at the four, you have such a rebounding thing. And like the Mavs last year, I think they were the worst rebounding team in the league with Barnes at the four, Dirk at the five. There's just no way. So having a guy like Cousins who can just get every rebound makes it a lot easier to have a small lineup around him. Oh, that'd be so much fun. So anything else that you guys, we've been thinking about these five teams, talking about them now for a little while. Anything else that you feel like needs to be a part of this story, a part of this podcast? I think New Orleans is going to be fascinating. Just the other thing too with them, like with ownership, I know uh, Tom Benson's, it's unclear how much of a role he has anymore. And just what happens there is going to be one of the big questions because eventually if this doesn't work out, they got to start thinking about Davis long-term and even this market long-term. Can they sustain a second pro, pro, pro sports franchise? It's unclear they can. So that is kind of like, and then with Davis there, it just feels like that's going to be a huge story in the NBA this next year, maybe next two years, especially if the Cousins thing does not work out. Because if Cousins doesn't work out, what does Davis start to think about this franchise? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if Cousins, if, if the Cousins thing doesn't go as planned, that's the kind of move that completely changes the infrastructure of a team, I would imagine. You know, you're talking about front office changes. You're talking about coaching changes. You're talking about basically a complete reset in, a, you know, a mad effort to try to convince Davis that, no, we can do things differently than we have for the last X years. Because I think the track record to this point has not given him a lot of reason for confidence. And I think ownership, too. Mike, from what I understand, David Stern was really hard. He wanted to keep them in New Orleans. He wanted to make sure ownership stayed in New Orleans. But if Silver's there, if the Benson family sells, like that's a lot of money to be made selling this team. If they sell this team, then it's like, where would they go? So then maybe you can sell Davis on going to Seattle or who knows. To me, there's just so many questions about New Orleans. They'll be one of the most fascinating teams to watch this season. And, and the idea, I hadn't really thought about relocation for them, even though their market hasn't really supported it. And also a big factor in why Stern did that was Katrina. You know, it was the, the timing of everything yeah. like that, that they didn't want to take the team out. And, and New Orleans is a wonderful city like for the NBA and a lot of other reasons, like hosting the All-Star Game there and everything else. But the problem with relocation in terms of Davis is that takes time. And and if you know, it's hard to sell them on that when Davis could be a free agent in 2020. And you're right that you know, because because of the money they've committed to to Drew Holiday, the money they've you know, Anthony Davis is obviously getting paid, Solomon Hill. You know, maybe they could stretch or trade Omar Ashik after the season. But basically, what you're if the, if Cousins leaves, they can't really replace him. Then you have this ticking clock, and then and this is this would also be the next big test of the designated veteran thing because is Davis willing to forego a ton of money uh, and committed ahead of time to stay there in in this flawed situation? And and we don't know, like we we don't know exactly how that's going to work out, but. Yeah, I mean that. If especially if Cousins leaves, that becomes just this massive NBA story and the arms race because 
Davis would be just the best player to hit the best player to hit the trade market in a long time. I mean, the free agent market has had some really special guys with LeBron and Durant and everything else, but the trade market, you know, as as great as we've seen some guys get moved, Davis is a completely different animal. Let me throw something out there. I was just thinking about if Davis was available, what if like Philly will just like unloaded their chest, said Ben Simmons and every draft pick we have, right? They have a bunch of draft picks still. You could have Davis and Embiid playing together. I don't know. I was just thinking about that. Something fun. Who knows where he would go? But it'd be really fun to watch that, obviously. Well, yeah, and by Boston's war chest is a little th- is thinner now than it used to be, and so they're now they're starting. If they were thinking about a Davis trade, and I know I've seen that from Boston media forever, they're now more reliant on on guys that are already on their team than future picks because they still do have you know they still do have some decent assets, but losing the the Brooklyn pick and the Kyrie Irving trade, justified or not does reduce that. So yeah, I mean, that would be, yeah, lots of big questions there. I guess the other thing too is like, if Cousins, if they don't think it's going to work, do they make him available in February? And like, what team wants to roll the dice on that for like three months? I don't know. I'm also a little curious about San Antonio, mostly just because I'm still kind of in my head trying to piece together how that team won 61 games last season, how the, the defense was as good as it was. And you're talking about a team that's kind of strapped down even more and lost some of its depth. And then when you're talking about them as a team who they really win a lot of regular season games and do a lot of their good just by, as Danny, as Danny put it, kind of just out executing other teams when they're not quite as prepared and quite as ready. And that's one area where losing Tony Parker for a portion of the season, you know, Parker's not a great NBA player at this point. I think there's, you know, I think Patty Mills is probably a better one. And so, you know, in terms of personnel, they might be getting an upgrade by his absence. But just by having a steady hand and a guy who's going to contribute to that execution, I think could really end up costing them in terms of this, at least in terms of the regular season win total. I mean, I don't, I'm not as confident that they're going to blow past the over under as you are, Danny, uh, just because I think that. Last season, for me, still seems a little bit fishy in terms of just how many games they won. Well, I think with that, it's like, are, have we seen Kawhi's ceiling? Like, can he get any better? Because they, they'll probably even have him make play even better than he played last year. Like, they keep adding more stuff to his portfolio every year. At some point, he will top out. Let's see, how old is he now? 26. Yeah, he's still only... Just, I mean, theoretically, he could still maybe... Because he'll probably have the ball in his hands more next year. I feel like Kawhi for MVP is a pretty easy call right now. But he'll probably have to get like five assists a game, which is weird to think. Like, can he get better? He'll have to have a bigger role. So, how much better can he be? He's gotten so much better already. Has he reached the ceiling yet? Well, Do you think he has that kind of passing in him? I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. He might just have the ball in his hands enough to do it. You know, like if if, if they're you know if they're going to play Patty Mills and Dejounte Murray with him, then the ball is going to be in his hands a lot. So, just with the way it moves, they could end up with it a little bit. The other part of of Kawhi's MVP case is if they're still a top five defense, considering everything that's going on around him. Kawhi is to me is a serious contender, if not the favorite, for defensive player of the year. And if he's, you know, in that conversation and this as good offensively as he's been, then I think that's a really easy MVP case. Maybe not, you know, not not that he'll win it definitively, but that he has a really good argument in that. And so we, we I don't know if San Antonio is going to have a top five defense, but if they can, then because it's hard to give credit anywhere else. I mean, of course, some of it will go to Pop, and you know, Danny Green's certainly capable. But if if what seemed fishy to Rob, and I totally understand that, if what seemed fishy stays strong, then you have to give the credit somewhere. 
No, absolutely. And in some sense, that kind of fishiness is the story of the Spurs, where they just find these ways to get things out of players that you would never expect. And even in this case, to get things out of their superstar that you wouldn't expect, where I guess I shouldn't write off the possibility that Kawhi would jump in assists or that he could score even more than he did last year in a career year, that you know he could trend upward in some meaningful way. You know, It seems to me like he's getting close to his ceiling. But the Spurs just have that way of, of kicking things up to a degree and to a level that you would you would never predict of them. I think, too, with the way Pop uses roster, they tend to use all 15 guys. Like, I really want to see these young guys in San Antonio. Like, I think that'll make some interesting to watch this season is they have so many. They were a really old team last year, and this year they're going to have to play a lot more young guys. And we'll see, like, Brandon Paul. Interesting to watch that. Like, they're kind of gambling as we can find more Jonathan Simmons very easily. We can bring a Brandon Paul in from Europe, plug him into that same role, and get 15 minutes a night out of that guy. Can they do that? Are those guys more replaceable than we realize? That's something to watch, too. One of the things that's so exciting about this division is there's something worth keeping an eye on on every single team. You know, San Antonio, all these question marks. Houston, huge turnover. Memphis, huge turnover. New Orleans, you know, maybe this is the only year of it. Otherwise, it's the first real, like, offseason and, and getting to see all of these guys together with planning and all of that. And then Dallas, I mean, if Dennis Smith is what we think he is and, and maybe, you know, part of the last ride for Dirk, like, I'm excited to watch all of these teams regularly this year. I mean, it helps that there's just no real stinkers in the bunch. I mean, they're all relevant to some extent. And as you mentioned, Danny, they are kind of defining themselves in some way. And so that kind of clarifying season, even though, you know, maybe only two of them end up making the playoffs, these are going to be teams to track and teams to watch. I guess, too, if we're talking about defining themselves, there's always a chance Memphis falls off. And if Memphis falls off, they start thinking about re-blowing the whole thing up. And that's something else to keep in mind, too. Well, and something I've been wondering about is just what does blowing it up entail? Because at that point, you know, we're dealing with, in their 30s, Gasol and Conley still making a ton of money. Like, I don't see any team throwing themselves on those contracts saying, as good as those players are, saying, we want the rest of that. Yeah, I mean, Memphis's cap situation is it's so bad. Ugh. It's, like, unbelievable, really. Like they think, I think they have like eighty million bucks and three guys in like four years or something. Just yeah, it, it's it's about at that level. And you know, as good as Conley and Gasol were last year, and they played, I think it was a hundred and I can't remember the exact number, but it was high last year for the two of them combined because they didn't miss much time. And you know, if that gets worse for them, and I could understand them wanting to be uncompetitive teams, and then you know, would that maybe be an avenue for even for San Antonio for either one of those guys? Ooh. Just, just kind of the to to roll with it, say, hey, you know, we're not going to be, we're never, we're not going to be the team that the the avant garde team that I've always wanted them to be. They're going to be themselves, and those guys are both kind of lean in players for San Antonio that would fit just, in pretty seamlessly. Those are very Spurs players. So yeah, the numbers are so in twenty twenty, they've got four guys under contract: Conley, Parsons, Gasol, and Wade Baldwin at eighty three million dollars. Long story short, they better have Chandler Parsons playing good basketball next year. Good luck with that. I think we've covered this well, and I'm I'm thrilled that you guys took the time. So thank you guys so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Had fun doing it. No, it's been a treat. I mean, to, to be frank, I think this division is a lot more rich and interesting even than I realized going in. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. This is going to be a fun year. 
Thanks again to Jonathan and Rob for taking the time to come on. You can read Jonathan Charks at The Ringer, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Charks, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. You can also read Rob Mahoney at Sports Illustrated, does a lot of great work, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. And I, I look forward to doing this one for a while. We had, we've had we been talking about it, and it was better to do it in September than to do it beforehand, and it was good to wait, also because of the Tony Allen thing. I mean, it was rare to actually get to talk about something so current in it. And I considered it a bonus episode, but you can check out the Real Gym Radio that came out with Eric Benish, who is the senior producer of NBA 2K18, game which will be released very soon. I'm excited about that. And you can check that out. It's, of course, in the Real Jam Radio feed and everything else like that. And be back with more. Still have the Pacific Division left to do. But what looks like it's going to come ahead of that is the over-unders with Arturo Galetti. We had to push that back due to Hurricane Irma, but we are going to do it in the near term. And since I had already announced that one, I feel like I can give you an update on when it's going to happen. And people have asked me because I know there are many who enjoy those episodes like I do. And so... My instinct is that that will be the next two weeks of this, and then I'll catch up on the Pacific Division before the season gets going and still have to figure out exactly who it's going to be with the guests, but I have some good ideas, so we'll work with it from that point. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I've actually been keeping an eye on Eurobasket, which is going on as I record this, watching the end of Serbia versus Italy, and so then the semis will be in the next couple days in the final. I don't think I'm going to do anything for Real Jam Radio about it, but, you know, maybe if there's if there's enough interest, I'll consider it. And, yeah, a lot going on, waiting for the, the season to really get going. Hopefully going to start doing more CBA encyclopedia work now that I'm fully back from my vacation, getting back to my normal workload. That is the expectation in the very near term, and my work for the athletic Athletic, and presumably I'm, I'm working on a piece that I'm guessing will end up at the Sporting News, but you'll see that on my Twitter feed and everything else. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com, at DannyLaRue on Twitter. You can also... Re- like I mean, it's better to use to use email because it stays permanent and because Twitter can be very ephemeral in that in that sense, and and it provides for more substantive input, which is very important to me, as many of you know. And I don't promise to respond, but I do promise to read it. It's the absolute least I can do, and I do appreciate everything. If you want to support the show, you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player for choosing. You can subscribe. You can download every episode. You can spread the word, word of mouth, either actual word of mouth or through the internet. All of those are very appreciated. There are people, you make the assumption that people know about this podcast. They don't always. It's just not the way it works. And you can also support me by pre-ordering my book, 100 Things Warriors Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It is a very warrior-centric book. That's the way it works, but it is me writing, so if you want to check it out, I'm probably going to put something out in the process of figuring out how to handle signed copies for people who don't live in the area. I'm in the process of working that out, so keep an eye. And of course, the best way you can support this show and any other ones who have them is by checking out our sponsors. For this episode, that is Bombfell, B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L. Great way to check out clothes. I've got, as I said in the in the read, two shirts that I, I love and a set of pants that I really enjoy as well. And if you go to bombfell.com slash realgm, you get $25 off your first order. So not only do you get to check it out, but you get a discount. And then FanDuel, fanduel.com, join now button, realgm. You get entry in a big, big money contest. I think it's $10,000 and you get to check it out. I've been doing it all. Uh, I've been doing it for the last week. I'm going to set up my lineup before the game on Thursday. And yeah, it's, it's an absolute blast. And I'm looking forward to the season. We're about a month 
away at this point, but once the preseason starts, there's a lot more to talk about and a lot more to discuss. So looking forward to that, of course, as well. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited, world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.